Well, that's fun singing the gospel, isn't it? And just uh, thanking the Lord, praising Him for the amazing plan of redemption that He has orchestrated in His wisdom and His grace and His mercy to put on display all of His glorious attributes. And uh, we are studying about the gospel in the book of Philippians, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Uh, Back to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to see some of what we just sang in our text this morning. We're going to go back to where we started last week and uh, hopefully finish up this particular uh, section, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Let me read these verses again just to set them in our minds as we begin again today. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, but... Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had to sing of the gospel and now to to study the gospel once again in this precious letter that Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi. And I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to, to understand what Paul was saying here and also to see how it applies to our lives today. I pray that we would all leave here this morning with a greater passion to know you and to grow to be like you so that we might be a reflection of you to everyone that we live with, that we work with, we go to school with, that they would get a sense that when they're with us, they're with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, getting saved is a lot like getting married. And uh, those of us who are married have some added insight into what Paul was saying in these verses about his relationship with Christ. Um, For those of you who aren't married, let me explain. Um, From the moment that you meet your spouse, you have a desire to get to know them better, and the more you get to know them, the more you grow in love for them, which ultimately leads you to want to marry them. And uh, our Marriages began when we walked down the aisle and made a commitment before God to love each other no matter what for the rest of our lives. But even as special as our wedding day was, and despite all that we knew about our maid and how much we loved them before we got married, that was, that was just the beginning. The marriage is, is really a lifelong pursuit of getting to know our spouse better and growing more in love with them. I can honestly say that that I know my wife so much better and I love her so much more now after almost 27 years of being married to her than 
than I did the day I married her. You see, when you truly love someone, you're not content just having a casual acquaintance with them. You, you want to be as close and intimate with them as possible, which eventually leads you to becoming like them. In fact, you may have noticed this at times, that even uh, an older couple, a couple that's been married for years, they, they even start to look like one another. Have you noticed that? Well, what's up with that? Well, that's the way it was for Paul and his relationship to Christ. And from the moment he met Christ on the road to Damascus and committed his life to obey and, and serve him, he wanted to know him more and he wanted to become more like him. This was the, the passionate pursuit of Paul's life, to know Christ more intimately and to reflect him more perfectly. And Paul expressed this passion uh, to the believers in Philippi some 30 years after he had been radically saved. And so he was still on fire for the Lord after 30 years. And here in chapter 3, he, he shared his, his own personal testimony of how a proud, self-righteous Pharisee like himself came to the realization that he was spiritually bankrupt. Despite all the, uh, all the religious achievements and accomplishments that he had uh, earned over the years, that despite his rich heritage as a Jew, in that blazing blinding encounter with Christ, Paul, for the first time in his life, understood that he had a debt that he could never pay, no matter who he was or what he did, but that Christ came to pay that debt by living and dying in his place. And so he completely abandoned his own efforts to make himself right with God and humbly accepted by faith the righteousness that God provides through the life and death of his son. And consequently, Paul's life was, was radically altered. He became a, a, a new man with new values and new passions and new goals and new hopes. And, and here in our text this morning, verses 7 through 11, Paul explained this, this radical reversal of values and passions and, and, and goals and hopes that he experienced when, when God had graciously opened up his spiritual eyes to see that all the things he had prided himself in and trusted in to attain uh, right standing before God amounted to nothing compared to the worth of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we began last week looking at this, this passage that we decided to break down into to two sections. We see, first of all, Paul's appraisal of his past Paul's appraisal of his past, and he says in verse 7, whatever things were to gain, were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This was right after he got done listing all the things that at one time he had counted on to earn God's favor, and he just renounced them all as having no value when it comes to, to earning or attaining salvation. And all the things that he considered as assets in his life, he realized were actually liabilities. Because as long as he trusted in in, in these things, he, he could never be saved. But once he got saved, whatever he considered valuable to him before, he saw it as worthless when weighed against the treasure that he received in the person of Christ. He says, more than that, I've counted count all things to be lost, verse 8, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again, this was the only time in Paul's writings where he referred to Christ as my Lord. He's emphasizing the personal relationship 
or the personal aspect of his relationship with Christ, that, that, that Christianity is not just a religion, it's a relationship. He said, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I mean, when, when Paul came to Christ, he, he literally lost everything that he had ever inherited, everything he'd ever worked for up to that point in his life. And he said, I count them but rubbish. Rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish, we, we said, was the Greek word skubalon, which meant human excrement. And so Paul considered his ancestry, his nationality, his education, his, his religiosity, all of his attainments as, as nothing but a despicable pile of poop that was good for nothing but to be scooped up and thrown in the trash. I was thinking about that this week as I was picking up the poop in our backyard from our dogs. And I'm like, it's a scubalon. This is what Paul was talking about. What am I going to do with this stuff? I stick it in the bag and I, don't want, I want to get rid of it. I want to get it out of my yard. It's out of here. Paul's saying, get it out of your life. It's, it's, it's worthless. Throw it away. Throw it in the trash. Garbage. Why? Because he wanted, verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, derived from the law. He'd been striving his entire life to earn his own righteousness by meticulously keeping the Old Testament law that was given to the Jews. But then he discovered that no matter how hard he tried, he would never be righteous enough for God to let him into heaven. And he realized that's why Jesus was sent by God to live the life that we all failed to live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. By living and dying in our place, Christ earned achieved, accomplished the righteousness that God requires in order for a person to enter his presence in heaven. And that righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is imputed to us or credited or transferred to our account by God to, to, to everyone who admits that all their works are filthy rags in God's eyes and believes that, that they can only be saved by the work that Christ has done for them. It's not our work, it's Christ's work. And so we said last week that when Christ died on the cross, our unrighteousness was imputed, this is the doctrine of imputation, right? Was imputed, credited, transferred to his account. And when we place our faith in Christ's death in our place, his righteousness is imputed, credited, transferred to our account. And so this is, this is what is so profound about the doctrine of imputation, which sounds all fancy and like confusing, but it's really very simple. It's this, that God treated Jesus as if he had lived our sinful life so that he could treat us like we lived his sinless life. That's profound. And the only way that we will ever be allowed entrance to heaven is if we exchange our filthy rags for Christ's righteous robe, his robe of righteousness. And so this was, this was Paul's appraisal of his past. 
But then he goes on to share his aspiration for the future. To share his aspiration for his future in verses 10 and 11, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So after explaining his, his new values in verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul went on to explain his new passions, his new goals, his new, his new hopes and dreams, if you will. And, and, and by the way, these same passions and goals and hopes should characterize the life of every Christian. Our greatest passion, our greatest goal, our greatest hope should be to grow as close to Christ as possible and to be as much like Christ as possible. And essentially, as Paul was expressing his desire to grow closer to Christ and to be more like Christ, he was describing how we grow closer to Christ and how we become more like Christ. And so I want us to look at these these two remaining verses in our text, verses 10 and 11, as essentially five ways to know Christ and grow to be like him. Five ways to know Christ and grow to be like him. And if you are familiar enough with our mission statement as a church, that sounds very much like our mission statement. That we exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth of his word so that people will come to what? Know Christ and grow to be like him. All that we do, the goal, the purpose, is so that people will come to know Christ and grow to be like him. And so here we have a a couple verses here that are going to help us better understand our mission statement as a church and really our own personal mission statement. Because the reason why we chose that mission statement as a church is because it's really the mission statement of every, every Christian, that we all exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living his word so that people would come to know Christ and grow to become like him as a result of our lives. Amen? And so what, is it, what does it take to know Christ? What, is it, what does it look like to grow to become like him? Well, there's, there's five things here that, that Paul refers to. Uh, number one, you need to experience Christ. Number one, you need to experience Christ. Notice he says here that I may know him. Now, there are several Greek words for knowledge or know, and Paul used the one here uh, that means to know something experientially rather than just intellectually. In other words, uh, he wasn't talking about head knowledge here. Paul didn't want to just know about Christ. He wanted to know him personally. And again, he uses the word in in, in verse 8. He talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus He didn't say the Lord as if he had some distant relationship with with Jesus Christ. He was the Lord. No, he was my Lord. There was a personal connection between Paul and Christ. Let me try to help you understand what what I think Paul was saying here. If I asked you to raise your hand, don't do it, okay? But if I asked you to raise your hand, if you know who Donald Trump is, I think everyone in this place would would raise their hand. You know know who Donald Trump is. And if I asked you to share some facts that you know about him, I would think most everyone here could could name one or two facts about Donald Trump. But if I asked who has actually met Donald Trump or 
knows him personally or spends time with him on a regular basis, probably no one in here could raise their hand. Unless you're Reagan Reed. Because I saw a picture of him standing next to Donald Trump. I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. The point is, we all know Donald Trump. But we don't know Donald Trump. It's the same with Jesus. Everyone here has heard of Jesus. We we know some information about Jesus, but not everyone has met him or knows him personally or spends time with him on a regular basis. What about you? Do you simply know about Christ? Or do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Or, Or better yet, I think the, the real question is not, do you know Christ, but does Christ know you? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, not everyone who, who claims that Jesus is their Lord or says they're a Christian will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. These people were very religious. They were very involved in ministry. They were, sounds to me like they were plugged into the church big time here. They, they, they did all these things for the Lord and the Lord's name, for the Lord's work. He said, and then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, go to hell. Why? Because I I don't know you. Who who are you? You you say you know me, but who are you? I just didn't read the story, so this might be a bad example, but, you know, the guy that tried to, you know, said he was a personal friend to Trump and wanted to get into the White House to see him, Trump's probably like, who are you? I don't know you. Um, you think you know me, but you're delusional. And there's some delusional people sitting in churches all across our country thinking they know Jesus when Jesus is like, who are you? See, being a Christian means that not only you know Jesus, but Jesus knows you. And Jesus has to be more than, than a mere acquaintance. You need to be in a committed relationship with him, which is not based or founded on just adding some information about him in your brain. You, you know a lot about Jesus up here in your head. No, that committed relationship needs to result in the transformation of your entire life. In that same context of Matthew 7, when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father, the, the context, he goes on, he tells the, the, the parable or the story of, of the two builders. Remember this, Matthew 7, verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And I think Jesus' point was this, that the best indication that you genuinely know Christ 
and that he knows you is that you seek to obey him in the way that you live your life. In other words, knowing Christ is more than just intellectual. There's a volitional, uh, a decisional, a, a, a practical dimension in knowing Christ. And the, 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 the scriptures make it clear that nothing is truly known unless it's lived out, unless it's applied. Job 28, 28 says, to depart from evil is understanding. In other words, you might claim to have understanding. You might know that that's wrong. But until you depart from it, until you repent of it, then you really don't know that it's wrong. In order for you to really know that it's wrong, is that you'll actually repent. You'll actually depart from that. That's true understanding. And so if we know Christ in a, in a deep, personal, intimate way, it will affect our daily lives. It'll affect our words. It'll affect how we talk and how we act. And it'll affect our attitudes. And so for Paul, Jesus was, was more than just fire insurance. Jesus was more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. He wanted to, to get to know Christ so he could live like Christ. He, he wanted Christ to reproduce himself in, in his life. And so I ask you this morning, do you desire to know Christ in the same way? Do you desire to be this intimate with Christ? Do, do you spend time with Christ in his word and prayer on a regular basis in order to get to know him and, and to grow closer to him? The, the only way you get to know somebody better is spending time with them. And again, we see this in, in marriage, right? After a, after a guy gets married, there's a temptation just to move on to other things, to, to mount the trophy on the wall. I got... I bag my wife, you know, boom, and, and, and go on to the next big thing in life, which is typically your career or your hobbies. And, and so you, you, you pursue other things besides your wife. After a girl gets married, they, they tend to get distracted by other things and oftentimes good things like their children, and, and, and yet they don't continue to pursue their husband. And so we know that the, the key to a close intimate, thriving marriage relationship is that that couple spends time together cultivating their relationship spiritually and mentally and emotionally and even physically. In fact, the word that Paul used here in verse 8 for knowing and in verse 10 for know is the same word used back in the Old Testament in Genesis 4.1 to describe Adam and Eve's physical union which resulted in the conception of their first child, Cain. The King James Version says, Adam knew his wife. There's a lot. You can literally say that's a pregnant statement, literally. (laughs) He knew his wife. And so much like being married, being a believer is this lifetime spent pursuing Christ and getting to know him better and growing closer and more intimate with him and developing a, a deeper love for him over the years. And this was thrilling for the Apostle Paul. This is what he lived for, to know Christ, to love Christ, to be like Christ. Because before Paul came to Christ, all he had was a burdensome religion to maintain. But once he became a Christian, he had a blessed relationship, a friendship 
to pursue with the Lord Jesus Christ? How would you describe your relationship with the Lord? Is it just a, a burdensome kind of religion to maintain? Or is it a blessed friendship, relationship to pursue with the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, if you want to know Christ, you want to grow to be like Christ, it all starts with you truly coming to know Christ by experience. Not just secondhand knowledge. My spouse is a Christian. My mom and dad are Christians, so this must mean I'm a Christian. No. You need to come to know Christ personally. He needs to become your Lord and Savior, not just your husband or wife's Lord and Savior, not just your mom and dad's Lord and Savior. He needs to become your personal Lord and Savior. And so the first thing that we see here uh, if we are to know Christ and go to be like him, we need to know Christ or to experience Christ for ourselves. For ourselves. We need to experience Christ for ourselves. Secondly, we need to rely on Christ's power. We need to rely on Christ's power. Notice um, that I may know him, he says, and the power of his resurrection. Christ's resurrection was and is the greatest display of power the universe has ever seen or ever will see. And ever since Paul came face to face with the resurrected Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus, he was transfixed. He was mesmerized by the power of the resurrection. And so he wrote about it and he prayed about it a lot. Turn just back a few pages to Ephesians. Ephesians Chapter 1, this was a, another letter that Paul wrote while he was under house arrest uh, in Rome. Uh, he wrote this at the same time. Essentially, he wrote Philippians, and so there's a lot of commonality in these letters. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, this is what he writes to the believers in the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And here it is. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? I'm praying that your eyes would be opened, that you would be enlightened, so that you would know, that you would see the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, I'm praying that you will, that you will understand, that you will embrace, that you'll apply, that you'll live out the power of God in you. And by the way, it's the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. He goes on, look at chapter 2. We'll just skip a few verses and jump into chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's one of the clearest descriptions of man's total depravity anywhere in Scripture that we were helplessly and hopelessly dead, spiritually speaking, and headed for hell. From the moment we were conceived, right, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
Verse 4, but, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us, what? Alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that sound familiar? He just got done talking about that in chapter 1, that that this power that had raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places is the same power that regenerated us and, and granted us spiritual life, brought us back from the dead, if you will, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so Paul likened conversion to a resurrection, that we were spiritually dead and we needed to be resurrected. Turn over to Romans 6. Romans 6 here, Romans 6 verse 4. Paul talks some more about this resurrection imagery, likening our conversion to a resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I think Paul's point here is he's just developing this idea of salvation or conversion being a resurrection, and not only... Was it the same power that raised Christ from the dead that regenerated us? But that same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that operates within us to grant us victory over sin. As we live the Christian life, we continue to battle with indwelling sin. And how are we to have victory over that sin? Well, Paul confessed his own frustrating struggle with with his flesh in Romans 7, the very next chapter, and he knew the futility of relying on his own power to overcome sin in his life. Look at Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what, am I, what, am I, what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's he's sounding like um, kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde here a little bit. Uh, Kind of a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This transformation that takes place, that goes on, the battle in his in his flesh, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present, present in me, but the doing of what is good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but, the, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. In other words, I keep sinning, 
I keep doing these things that I I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Again, it's all about indwelling sin, the remaining flesh after we've been saved. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, I agree. I agree with what the law says in my mind, in my heart, my conscience, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. In other words, there's this inner, in, inward battle. And then he culminates by saying this, verse 24, don't miss this, wretched man that I am. I am such a wretch. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus Christ and his power that delivers us And so Paul knew the the secret to to mortifying sin, which he goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 8, that we we mortify our sin not based on our flesh, the power of our flesh. In other words, I'm just going to grit my teeth, I'm going to try harder, work harder, pray more, read more, and and I'm going to overcome my sin sin in my life. No, it's, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul knew the secret to to mortifying sin and living a holy life was, was relying on the resurrection power of Christ, living in him and through him via the Holy Spirit. I think the point for us is very simple. It is impossible for us to live a life that is pleasing to God, the life that he wants us to live in our own power and strength. It's not possible. And so we need to to rely on or depend on Christ's power. And I think that's what Paul was talking about here when he said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know that power, the power of Christ's resurrection living in and through me. It's regenerated me. Now I want it to sanctify me. I want it to make me more holy. And so this seems like the next natural thing, right? You think I got saved. Okay, I got saved. I've come to know Christ experientially for myself, and now I need to learn to live in reliance on Christ's power. I need to learn to live, I've lived my whole life in my own strength, in my own power, my own wisdom, now I need to rely on Christ's power. Paul goes on, there's a third thing that we need to do to, to grow, to know Christ more and to become more like him, and that is you need to suffer with Christ. You need to suffer with Christ. You want to grow you want to know Christ more, you want to grow to be more like him, you got to suffer with Christ. you got to follow the way of the cross. There's no easy way about it. There's no easy way to, to, to come to know Christ more, to grow closer to Christ, to become more like him than to suffer. Philippians 3, again back in verse 9, or excuse me, back in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ. He wanted to suffer like Jesus suffered. For him to to live in luxury and ease in in the world where his precious Lord was rejected and 
and, and maligned and scourged and crucified would be inconsistent in his mind with a, with a true follower of Christ. Why? Because Jesus told his followers to expect to suffer, just like he suffered, and that they should consider themselves blessed when it happened. John 15, 20, Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the, time, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In fact, Jesus personally warned Paul at the very beginning of his ministry that he would suffer much to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he ended up finally making it to, uh, was led by his companions blind to the, the city of Damascus where he met another disciple of Christ um, who God said, Two, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. I want you to tell Paul. Tell Paul that, that, that he's going to suffer for my namesake. And so Paul willingly endured great suffering and affliction for the sake of Christ. And he talked a lot about it in his letters. In fact, here in Philippians, he's already mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That suffering is a gift from God. We not only get to believe in Christ, we get to suffer for Christ. Romans 8, verse 16, Paul said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, how do we know this, that we're truly heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified also with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said this, verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. In other words, man, we're suffering a lot. Our suffering is abundant. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And then he said this in Colossians 1.24, Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, the body of Christ, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul wasn't saying that somehow he could add to the redemptive um, purposes of, of Christ's affliction. No, that was complete. It was finished. But there were still people taking out their aggression, their frustration, their anger uh, on Christ, and they were doing it to him. And so he said, hey, I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing my share on behalf of the body of Christ, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. There's more, there's more suffering and affliction to be dished out by the enemies of Christ, and, and I'm taking it. Turn over to the book of Peter for a second, because no one talked more about suffering than 
or as much as Paul did than Peter. Just look at, look at 1 Peter for a moment and just getting to this, uh, understanding this whole concept of, of needing to suffer with Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Peter says, What credit is there if when we sin, or when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You deserve that. <laughs> if, you, if you sin and you're harshly treated, you deserve that. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So we've been called to suffer, and we, are, we need to follow the example of Christ. How about chapter 4 of, of Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 12? It actually, the title above the paragraph in my Bible says, Share the Sufferings of Christ. This is exactly what Paul was talking about back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to what Peter says here. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why, why are you surprised that you're suffering? This is a test. But, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublemaker, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Look at verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 9. Paul's talking about Satan as this adversary, this roaring lion who's prowling around seeking someone to devour, but resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Notice all over the world, Christians are suffering. Similar things, going through similar trials, facing similar attacks. And verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, just a little while, might seem like an eternity, but it's just a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think the point of all these verses is this, that God calls all of us to suffer in many ways and to, to many degrees. Why? In order to draw us closer to Christ and to mold and to shape us more into the image of Christ. What does Romans 8, 28 say? For God says, for God uh, works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose you're like, okay, that's great, but what is that good that he's working? Well, the next verse tells us, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of Christ. So what is the good that God is always working? He's working all things for good. What is the good? Ultimately, it's conforming us to the image of Christ. And so whenever we face any kind of trial or suffering, we need to, we need to see this God wanting to produce greater intimacy with him. Greater intimacy with Christ. He's driving us to Christ. 
So we get closer to Christ, and he's also chipping away areas in our lives that are not like Christ. I heard an example years ago when somebody asked a famous sculpt, sculpture, sculpture? A guy who sculpts. What is that? A sculpture. So anyway, they asked him, hey, how do, you, how do you do this? This is amazing. You got this big piece of granite, and, and you're able to transform it into these, these animals, a lion or, or whatever. He says, how do, how do you do that? How do, how do you turn this, this, this block of you know, granite into a lion? He said, simple. I just chip away everything that doesn't look like a lion. And, and that's essentially what God is doing to us. He's just constantly looking at us and going, we're big blocks of granite, right? He's, I'm just chipping away everything that doesn't look like Christ. And he uses suffering. That's his hammer and chisel is suffering. And I think all of us can attest to the fact that, that it was during those times when suffering has been the most intense that our fellowship with Christ has been the most intimate. Isn't that true? The harder life is, the closer we get to Christ, the deeper the pain and the sorrow, the quicker and stronger we grow in Christ, and the clearer he's reflected in our lives. And so if you want to know Christ, you want to become like Christ, you need to suffer with Christ. And then fourthly, you need to obey like Christ. You need to obey like Christ. Back in Philippians chapter 3, notice he says, he goes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I think part of this is, you could have, I could have put it under suffering that ultimately we need to be willing to die for the sake of Christ. That would be the ultimate suffering, the ultimate sacrifice. But I thought I'd make this a separate point, that you need to obey like Christ. What does it mean to be conformed to his death? Paul wanted to gradually morph into the image of Christ. In fact, the word conform there, in the, the word that he uses in the Greek is the same word that we, where we get our English word morph or metamorphosis. And so Paul wanted to morph into the image of Christ. And his desire was to experience a total transformation so that he resembled Christ in every way, particularly by being obedient even to the point of death. You remember chapter 2, what he said, describing the attitude of Christ in chapter 2, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think, first of all, Paul was expressing here that in the same way that Christ was willingly crucified out of obedience to, to God, Paul wanted to obey God and follow Christ's example by living a crucified life. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, you need to be willing to die. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. 
Romans 8.36, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul was likening himself to Christ back in the Old Testament in Psalm 44. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, listen to this. Always, Paul says, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Probably the most helpful verse is Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been, what? Crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was wanting to live a crucified life, which reflected, manifested Christ. And not only did he want to live a crucified life, I think he also was expressing here that he was prepared to die as a martyr for Christ. One commentator said it well. He said, Paul was, passionately devo- Paul was a passionately devoted follower of the one who died on the cross of Calvary. Not only that, he was present when the first martyr of the Christian church died. In fact, he was an accomplice in murdering him. I'm talking about Stephen. And this is what he said. This is just... Um, I guess, hypothetical. Paul was actually, well, this is not hypothetical. Paul was actually anxious to pour out his life in the same way. Perhaps, this is the hypothetical part, perhaps he would have felt embarrassed to meet Stephen in heaven if he had come by any more comfortable route than martyrdom. It's like, hey, Stephen, how's it going? Yeah, I was there when you got stoned to death. And, uh, Yeah, I just died of old age. But we're here, right? How how about you? How how about me? How will we respond when we meet fellow saints in heaven and they say, I was beheaded. I was burned at the stake. I was eaten by a lion. There's people in heaven that got there by getting eaten by a lion. I was shot to death. And we'll be like, I was made fun of at school. I was passed over for a promotion at work. I got mean emails. I was slandered on the internet. Big whoop de doo right? I mean, come on. Another older commentator said this, Paul wanted to tread as a martyr the pathway of suffering and death that he might reach resurrection and glory by the same path as the blessed one who had won his heart. As Hudson Taylor said, there are not two Christs. There's not an easygoing Christ for easygoing Christians and a suffering, toiling Christ for exceptional believers. There's only one Christ. And so we need to be conformed to that one Christ. We need to obey like he obeyed, even to the point of death. And then finally, and quickly, you need to long for Christ's return. You need to long for Christ's return. This is interesting what what Paul says here, and it's caused some 
uh, Bible students to kind of scratch their head. What did he mean here when he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead? It almost sounds like Paul was wondering whether or not he would be saved, that he was maybe struggling with his eternal security. Well, we know later on in this chapter, he says in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You remember in Philippians 1, he said, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. He also said, for to me to live is Christ and to, what? To die is gain. I mean, this, these are not the words of a man who was not sure whether or not he was going to heaven. I think the issue in Paul's mind here was, again, not if he was going to heaven, but when and how he would get there. Literally, this resurrection, he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, it's the resurrection out from the corpses. In other words, Paul was expressing his preference to be raised from among the dead rather than from the dead. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, you ever heard of the rapture? I think that's probably what Paul had in mind here. The rapture, a concept that he explained in, in more detail in, in other letters that he wrote. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, well, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain... Until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Everyone who who has died in Christ will rise. Their bodies will be united with their souls. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul said he wanted to be one of those who was alive and remained when the Lord came so that he he could get caught up. And so his resurrection was certain. Uh, Again, the only thing he wasn't sure about was would he be one of those who was raised from the dead? Would he be one of those dead in Christ? Or would he be one of those who were raptured? And he was hoping it was the latter. And you get that sense when you, when you read Paul's letters that, that, that that dude, man, he anticipated the return of Christ, that Christ would return in his lifetime. That he thought he would still be alive at the rapture. And that's what drove him and granted him the, helped him endure all the sufferings that he endured because he was living in anticipation with this expectation that glad day when Christ would return. And listen, Christians today, we who endure sufferings and who might be undergoing great trial, we can have the same hope of deliverance. And that's why we call it the blessed hope, right? The blessed hope of Christ's return. And so Paul's 
deepest longing was to be with the Lord forever. That should be our deepest longing as well. And, 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 and he knew that, 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 that conformity to Christ was impossible on this earth, and it wasn't going to happen fully until he saw him face to face. And so what that meant in Paul's mind was either, either he would have to die and go to heaven or Christ would have to come back to earth. in order for him to reach his ultimate goal of being like Christ. James Montgomery Boyce suggested another possible interpretation, which I personally think is a stretch, but it fits the theme well. So I, I wanted just to share it with you because I, I appreciated what he was thinking when he wrote this, that he was essentially saying that, that, that Paul wanted to so fully identify with Christ that whenever he was around other people, they would feel like he was in the presence of Jesus. In other words, as I walk, this is what Boyce says, quote, as I walk your streets, as I walk into your homes, as I walk into your stores, as I walk into your offices, as I mingle among the sons of men, I want to be so living for Christ, so outstanding for him that you can see that I am a living one among the dead ones. Pretty cool to think about, right? That when you walk into your office tomorrow morning, you walk onto your campus tomorrow at school, that, that people are like, well, something's, you stand out. Something's different about you. And what is it? Because you're alive spiritually and everyone else is dead spiritually. And, and they get this sense that they've been with Jesus when they've been with you. And so if we want to know Christ, we want to grow to be more like him, these things need to characterize our lives. And so it begins by truly coming to know Christ in a personal way. Have you, have you, have you been there, done that? You need to learn to rely on, on his power and gladly suffer for his sake as you seek to live a crucified life and the entire time, we need to be longing for the return of Christ. Just can't wait for Jesus to come back. Well, next time we'll look at the next few verses which are all about Paul's ambition or attitude in the present. We've seen what he thinks about his past We've seen what he thinks about his future, but we're going to see now, so what? What does this mean now in my life? So come back next time for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this short little section of, of Philippians that's just packed with such powerful truth, practical truth. And Lord, I pray that, that we could say this, that, that we would want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your death in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Make this our passion. Make this our lifelong pursuit. And may you so change our life that when people spend time with us, they will sense something different and ultimately, they would realize that it's Jesus. And somehow we would be uh, a reflection of Christ to others, we pray, for your honor and glory, so they could come to know you.
and grow to be like you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.